Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Linda Calhoun, and I am chair of the club's International Relations Member-Led Forum. And I'll be your moderator for today's program called The Iran Crisis. And uh, we also welcome our listening audience and internet audiences, and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Vanafshe Kanosh. Vanafshe Kanosh is a scholar of international affairs. She's the author of Saudi Arabia and Iran, Friends or Foes, and the editor of the forthcoming book, Iran's Interregional Dynamics in the Near East. Dr. Kanosh was recently a visiting scholar at Princeton University in 2017-2018. She's done field work in the Gulf region through self-funded research trips, including Saudi Arabia and Iran, where she was a visiting fellow at the King Faisal Center for Islamic Studies and Research, and a visiting researcher in Iran. A professor at universities in the United States, she has advised the United Nations and the White House. Please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Vanefshe Kinosh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Linda Calhoun and the Commonwealth Club for hosting this event and for having me here. And thank you all for skipping a lovely, sunny, um, warm afternoon in San Francisco. I, I'm very glad to be here because I see many familiar faces and among them a few very dear friends of mine from San Francisco as well as from Florida. So it makes this day especially very, very um, good for me. Um, I was walking um, on the Embarcadero um, to the club and was wondering if decomplexify is actually an English word. <laughs> and I decided that it does, in a sense, sound ugly enough not to be a real word. But um, when we talk about Iran, things these days seem so complex that I thought, never mind, I'll still try to decomplexify Iran, if I may, today um, by first offering a little background that you are all quite aware of um, to then uh, continue the discussion to where we stand today. As we know, in the past month or two, there's been an escalation of conflict with Iran on two levels, one by the Trump administration and its decision to exert maximum pressure on Iran to bring about what is known in Washington or called in Washington as Iran's malign behavior. Um, and then on a second level, Iran has been reacting to the pressures from the United States by um, sort of stating that it believes that since it was a party to a nuclear deal that was made, including with the United States, but also with a number of other world powers and Iran in 2015, that it has the right to uh, expect the lifting of international sanctions against the country led by the United States at the moment. The Trump administration decided to withdraw the U.S. from that deal back last year in May 2018, and then subsequently a series of sanctions 
kicked in, especially targeting Iran's oil and gas industry. Um, most of Iran's revenue comes from this industry. And I'll talk a little bit about how Iran is, is working to still generate revenue despite the sanctions. But since 2018 to the present time, the Trump administration has um, basically tightened the sanctions while at the same time extending um, exemptions to a number of countries like India and China that still needed to import Iranian oil, a number of other local allies like Iraq that really depended on Iran's uh, export of electricity and gas in specific to Iraq, so that they can slowly cope with the sanctions. If those sanctions had kicked in rapidly, a lot of U.S. allies would have had a lot of economic problems of their own, uh, which, which, which tells us how difficult it is, in a sense, to, to bring about these sanctions regimes against a country like Iran, which is vast enough uh, with you know, at least 15 immediate neighbors around it that it can, in a way, circumvent the sanctions or, or, or talk with neighbors to somehow figure out how to exchange oil and gas. But having said that, um, those exemptions are now over. The Trump administration has decided no more exemptions. Um, there are countries that are still importing uh, oil, like China, from Iran. Um, but Iran has come out and said, well, if I can't um, export the oil, specifically from the Persian Gulf to the south, where it has about 2,200 kilometers of shores to that beautiful waterway, um, then nobody else can either. I mean, it's either... All of us, we gain from the security of the Gulf region uh, and its navigation or none. And there have been a series of incidents with the navigation of oil tankers, in, as you all know from the news, since May specifically. Um, there were a couple of attacks on a few tankers that the United States says Iran is responsible for. Um, Iran has denied any involvement in it, but, you know, we will just leave it there. Um, but at the same time, it has also derouted a couple of other tankers and held them more recently, a UAE. Uh, well, it was a Panamanian flagged but um, tanker um, that carried uh, illegal amounts of oil, um, which have historically been carried through the Strait of Hormuz and also the Gulf between the United Arab Emirates and Iran. It's just geographic proximity, but now these things are all sanctionable. So Iran had took that Rahana tanker, and then you know there were discussions about releasing it, and now we know there's also been ongoing discussions about the release of a British tanker that Iran has held, um, saying that, well, it, it, it hit something in the Gulf, and it was a danger to the navigation system, but anyhow, we decided to take it. And back on July 4th, the British came in and stopped an Iranian oil tanker in uh, Gibraltar with about 2 million barrels of oil, which they thought was going to Syria to a port that at the same time, simultaneously, uh, Bani Yassin in Syria uh, witnessed a, uh, an explosion. So we don't know how to connect the dots. I was just speaking to a lovely lady in the audience saying that, you know, events are events, but our my task is to really... Um, decomplexify the events to really understand if there is a trend. So if you allow me, I want to talk about the trends. Uh, as you know, I've done some research in Iran and in Saudi Arabia. These are two neighboring countries in the Gulf. And 
oftentimes when there is uh, a crisis in Iran, it impacts Saudi Arabia. Because Saudi Arabia is not only a geographic neighbor, but also the two share a common faith and then religion. And even in hard times, millions of Iranians go to Saudi Arabia for pilgrimage. Uh, and Saudi Shias still sometimes visit Iran uh, for pilgrimage as well. So it's a kind of a bond that cannot easily be broken. But here comes the United States as an ally of one country and as a foe, for the time being, of another, that being Iran and Saudi Arabia being an ally. So when I was researching the Saudi-Iranian relationship, I kind of want to realize that there's something really by way of a trend, an interesting pattern that goes on in that relationship. And I want to share a story, a historical story about that pattern. Please. Back in, I think it was in 1925 or so, um, and Iran was on the verge of um, turning its name from Persia into Iran with a new king um, crowning himself uh, as the Reza Shah, as the new king of, uh, of Iran, uh, establishing the Pahlavi dynasty in Iran. And in the meantime, there was another emerging leader in the Arabian Peninsula known as Ibn Saud in the West, but also Abdulaziz al Saud. And he kind of had his eyes on Persia's recognition of his new kingdom in Saudi Arabia because Persia was known as an empire for many centuries and it would have been nice to have Persia as an ally. So he wrote, he corresponded with Reza Shah and Reza Shah, of course, had not heard anything about him or the al-Asud. He knew that they were a tribe that had once lived in Riyadh but that then they lost their kingdom and fled to Kuwait and is like... We just know that people go to Mecca and Medina, and the Hashemites are the rulers of the Arabian Peninsula. We've never really heard much about the Al-Asud. So not really, I'm not that interested in a security arrangement with you. Um, and then um, over the years, um, the two countries approached World War II, and external actors like the British and the United States became more prominent in the Gulf region. So they kind of did did the job that these two countries couldn't do for themselves of building alliances with one or another. The United States, especially with Saudi Arabia, the British were very present in Iran. But but in the end, U.S. interests and British interests were dominant in the region, especially during World War II. And that kind of broke the natural bonds a little bit between Saudi Arabia and Iran in their ability to establish a balanced relationship in the Gulf because they were too busy, you know, um, understanding what to do in World War II, and they needed Western alliances. Um, so this whole region suddenly witnessed uh, uh, two countries that were part of it but couldn't build bonds. Um, obviously, if you want a balanced relationship, uh, a crisis-free region, you kind of need two countries to work together in a balanced way. But since then, there's always been a considerable imbalance of power, let's say, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, because Saudi Arabia has increasingly grown closer to the United States as a trusted ally in many respects that Iran was not able to, right? So this history aside, we are now here where we are trying to de- complexify what is going on. Iran is looking at the Gulf region at the moment uh, in a multifaceted way. It recognizes that the issues are extremely complex. 
uh, its primary concern is whether or not it will be able to ward off the pressures from the United States. But it also understands that it has leverages within the region to play with in order to to kind of create a, a situation which favors Iran a little more. And um, the escalation of the tanker, uh, it's not a war, but the tanker conflict is viewed by many observers of the region as efforts in part by Tehran to kind of signal to its neighbors at least that, you know, you either have to figure out a way of working with us or nobody is going to be safe in, in the region. With the United States, Iran, I, I wrote an article a while ago saying Iran is trying to lead a waltz with, uh, with the United States. President Trump might be thinking that by putting more sanctions on Iran, he's leading the game and hopefully bringing about a change of behavior in Iran. But Iran is kind of looking at this whole scenario with the United States quite differently. First of all, Iran is getting a lot of lessons from North Korea. Um, the North Korean um, foreign minister actually traveled uh, a few months ago to, to Iran just to say that, you know, never mind our negotiations with the United States. We don't feel that we can trust those negotiations. And if you follow the news just in the past 48 hours, both Iran and North Korea have shot um, testing missiles <laughs> uh, into the air. And I kind of wonder, it was North Korea who did it first and then Iran followed. So, you know, it begs the question of what is going on and who's following who, if at all. Um, but there's that example of the North Korean negotiations with the United States. And if those uh, negotiations falter or are delayed, that ob obviously grants Iran more leverage to figure out how to negotiate and and if not negotiate, navigate its uh, way with the United States. Um, Iran is also, as we know, internally very divided between two political camps. Let's just call them, uh, for today's sake, the reformists and the hardliners, the president being sort of representative of a more reform-minded agenda, whereas the uh, army, the military, the armed forces, the paramilitary groups uh, led by Iran's religious leader, supreme leader, are sort of more conservative and very hesitant about um, trying to change behavior because the United States demands it. They're like, why should we? We, we? we like what we do. And even if the rest of the world dislikes it, they're like, well, this is what we know and we're going to do it. And I'll talk a, a little more about what they're doing. But... Um, so internally, uh, and I hope I'm not just complicating the discussion. I hope I'm de still decomplicating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so internally, internally um, in, in Iran, um, what they are doing, in my view, is also um, playing this, this card of reformist versus hardliner to buy time with the United States. Because ultimately, it is Iran's armed forces that will decide about the country's security. And if the armed forces are of um, sort of a, 
you know, have to politically be aligned with a supreme leader that is very um, distrusting of the United States. Um, and has the group has come out and said, you know, we really don't want to negotiate with the Trump administration, then there's only so much that the reformist president and his allies can obtain. But what they're doing is presenting an image to the world of signal of saying that, you know, we might actually negotiate with the United States and only to backtrack on the idea of negotiating with the United States. So at times, Iran's president and his foreign minister suggest that negotiations are possible uh, with the Trump administration. The foreign minister of Iran was recently in New York. He made that suggestion again. But then you follow the local press in Iran, and you read what Iran's military commanders have to say, and they're like, never, never. Uh, so you wonder, again, what kind of leverage is Iran trying to build with the Trump administration here? And I believe it's time. It's buying time. Um, the president of Iran has also recently put on the table the idea of holding a naf national referendum on whether to keep the nuclear deal alive or not. And that also gives Iran uh, an additional leverage. Whether or not the referendum is held, Washington will say, well, let's give the country a little bit of time until maybe this referendum happens. And we know that if a referendum happens, all of the Iranians want an open country. They want a nuclear deal. They want to have um, better relations with the rest of the world. So that's it. So the, between this leverage of time and the possible potential referendum that's gone nowhere so far, and also following the North Korean footstep in negotiation, in understanding what the Trump administration's goals are, the, the situation in Iran is, is quite desperate, actually. I mean, there's only so much leverage that you can uh, use in dealing with a major power like the United States. And I'll leave the discussion about what is going on in Washington, maybe for the Q&A. We all know a lot about what is going on in Washington, but uh, in terms of how it impacts in uh, Iran, we can talk about that a little more. But, but, but the situation inside Iran is quite dire because for the people who live in Iran, they understand that the dichotomy between the reformists and the hardliner has frankly, even if it has any meaning or any political implication, has kind of overrun its course. Like, what's the result of all of this? Be you a reformer or a hardliner, um, show me the dough. People are increasingly impoverished. Um, but Iran still continues to play the card. Uh, for those of you who follow the Iran news, its former, um, much despised uh, at many levels, hardline president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad came out and said, oh, we really should negotiate with the United States. Okay, um, I, you know, I, I tweeted about it. I'm like, well, all is good that all ends, ends well, I guess, if he wants negotiations and the Trump administration takes it. All right, we'll see where it goes. But then so did a former reformist president of Iran, Mohammad Khatami, write, um, you know, obscure op-ed in the Guardian's Tehran Bureau column saying, oh, well, this isn't going well and something needs to be done. But the fact of this is that this really is aiming as a, at a foreign audience rather than a local audience. Internally, the Iranians are understand that this means just a little bit of buying time and leverage. But what is Iran? what about Iran's mal malign behavior as the Washington is concerned about it? To decomplexify the issue further on, um, the real leverage is is the leverage that Iran has within the region. 
And Iran has made it very clear since the signing of the nuclear deal that it has no intention whatsoever of changing its regional behavior. Um, in fact, I've been quite surprised constantly reading about it in, in the international press why, about why is Iran not changing its, its, its behavior. We gave it a nuclear deal. Um, isn't that enough? Well, it, the, the government in Iran, the people in Iran would like it, but the government in Tehran never promised a change of behavior. In fact, they used the occasion of the nuclear deal to increase their influence across the region in, among their allies. We know that they assisted the Syrian government in, in fighting uh, the civil war in, in Syria. They continue to assist Iraq on many levels because of an alliance with many Shias in Iraq. And Iran has considerable influence um, in places like Yemen and in Lebanon. So meanwhile, as these complex tanker um, flare-ups are occurring and these problems with Washington, um, Iran is basically um, become proactive in the region once again. It has actually re, uh, reached out once more to groups like Hamas. They had a bit of a falling out uh, during the Syrian conflict because at some point Hamas understood that because of the brutality of the Syrian civil war, it's really hard to be defending any any group in Syria and it kind of withdrew from the Syrian, in a sense, politically withdrew. And Iran just actually had Hamas leaders back in Tehran and, you know, they were all very uh, thankful of each other. And then um, they kind of told Hamas that it's time to rebuild relations with the government in Syria. And that is what is happening. Uh, in Lebanon, uh, the Lebanese and the Syrians had a little bit of a political fallout because there were many Syrian refugees in Lebanon that have put a lot of uh, pressure on Lebanese resources. Iran was back in trying to, you know, make the two reconcile and um, try to be nice to the Syrian refugees regardless and still protective of the government in Syria. With Israel, just again in the past week, Iran's supreme leader and, you know, statements coming out from Iran indicate that Iran has no intention of backing off from borders close to Israel within the Levant region, within Syria, within uh, especially Syria, but, you know, Iran's ally Hezbollah also has missile capabilities that, that are a little unnerving to Israel. So what is it? If we know all of this, why are we make complicating the issues so much? <laughs> we know that Iran's change of regional behavior will not come about. Then why do we keep insisting on it? We know that at a level, negotiations with the Trump administration are still a little far-fetched. Um, and even if they do happen, well, let's look at the North Korean model and see where that goes first, before we can become over-optimistic about the prospects of talks with Tehran. Then why do we keep talking about it? Just this week, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo said, I'm ready to go to Iran. Well, uh, you know, that would be lovely. Um, but again, are we just looking at quick events here, but are we looking at um, major changes? Those major changes are still not happening in as far as a complex country like Iran is 
is concerned, not with the United States, not within the region. Um, if anything, the pressure that Iran has been bringing on in the Persian Gulf with the issue of export of oil and with the tanker attacks has had the Saudis and uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, say, well, maybe it's time to talk with Iran um, because things have gotten so bad that that at least maybe they need to do something, especially if there is a war, say a hypothetical war. Well, those are Iran's neighbors, not the United States. They will pay a very hefty price, and they're already trying to get out of the war in Syria and the war in Yemen. It's been very costly, another war in Iran. So where are we? Okay, so here's where we are. This is where the real decomplexification happens. And this is my humble view and take on issues. In my humble, humble view, um, we have to watch and see where the UK goes first. The UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has come out attacking Iran very strongly yesterday, as soon as he assumed office. And the UK is still a member uh, of the nuclear deal, along with Russia, China, uh, Germany, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, Russia, why did I get around five? Uh, Russia, China, UK, and then France and Germany. But the US has pulled out. Um, well, will um, Prime Minister Johnson come closer to the Trump administration in condemning Iran's actions? There is a significant amount of tension between the UK and Iran at the moment because of the tanker a dispute between the two, both at the Gibraltar tanker case and the one uh, that Iran, the tanker that the British tanker uh, that Iran has taken. There's a level of negotiation between the two, but we don't know where the UK will go with this. And I don't know if Prime Minister Johnson knows yet. He's said he's going to be very careful in assessing what to do about Iran. Um, what is clear from his statements is that there's a degree of being fed up with Iran in a way that the British have not so far articulated so strongly before. But then where Britain goes with Brexit will also impact its relations with, with the Gulf region, including with Iran. In the case of Theresa May, because the no Brexit deal was a controversy inside Iran, uh, the UK and the UK economy was being badly impacted, they kind of went along with Iran for as much as they could. But we don't know if this will happen now. Uh, and a lot, we'll have to watch how Brexit happens for the UK, what that means for the UK economy, and that will tell us a lot whether the UK will continue to commit to the nuclear deal, because if it does, it means that at some point the Europeans will have to trade with Iran, even if the US sanctions, because that's what Iran says. It's like, if, we, if there is a deal, you have to trade with us. Otherwise, there's, it's given a 60-day notice saying we're going to leave the door. That 60-day keeps, by the way, coming closer but never really hits target. So I wonder if that's another way of leveraging, but fine. So that's one, one decomplexable approach to understand the, the under, underlying trend of what is going on with Iran. Uh, we need to watch the UK. In Washington, I think Washington has to understand that at some point it might be Iran leading the story here more than Washington would like. Um, Iran thinks that President Trump needs a negotiation with Iran as a victory card for his next re-election. 
And if Iran thinks that, uh, right or wrong, it knows that it has, what, another year and a half, two years to, to for us, citizens concerned of this global um, politics, to, to get up every morning and read the news about who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, are they going to negotiate, who's going to go to Tehran, who's going to come to New York. And it gets really, frankly, very tiring, right? Um, but um, that's another leverage that Iran will have. And in the meantime, it will continue to push forward with a multifaceted policy in the region that will irritate everyone except its closest allies, um, because that is another leverage that it will have to play. So what about the issue of war with Iran? We know that the Trump administration keeps saying that the war option is on the table. Um, in fact, the Obama administration said that. I think many U.S. administrations before that also said that. I'm a little tired of it. I mean, if I were a politician, I'd be like more decisive. If I'm going to go to war, I'll go to war and be done with it. And if I'm not, I'm going to stop talking about it. Um, but I'm not a politician. <laughs> uh, um, so, um, but it does beg the question of, well, what's going to go on? Is there going to be a war? Is there not going to be a war? Frankly... There's a level of a war going on already, but it's not of a military nature. It is inside Iran what they call an economic war. In Iran, things are really bad, uh, very bad and very difficult for the people because um, I don't want to blame it all on sanctions because that would be an inaccurate portrayal of the situation inside Iran. It's an inept management. It is a corrupt um, um, level of management that has, that has led to a rising distrust of what is going on inside Iran and with, with governments. And this corruption has gone on for a very long time, whether under reformists or under hardliners. So, you know, that level of war is pretty comprehensively understood inside Iran as going on. When you talk to con concerned countries in the region, like Israel, and they, the way Israel looks at Iran, it's like, well, in a way there is, and there is, there is a war too. I mean, Israel is one of the countries that's been pretty steady here saying to the Trump administration that we don't think we can deal with this government anymore. This government is continuing to build up along our borders. Even when the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates reach out a little bit to Iran because they're very geographically close and they have to watch out, Israel is still like, well, you know, let's build alliances among ourselves and see how we can contain Iran further. And there have been reports of... Israeli um, jets, you know, breaking into airspace. I don't know the veracity of those reports, but that's also a war. I mean, it's not yet, a, it's not a hard military war, but it is a soft war. So for those of us who have any illusions of whether war will happen or not, I think we need to contend with the fact that a soft war is already well underway. The results of which are unclear. But we will not find the results of this war in either a Trump administration, in either uh, negotiations or what may happen or not. What we see in the scenarios that I've explained is a gradual, gradual weakening of Iran that is steadily and surely happening.
Uh, we have an example of a similar country in the American continent, Venezuela, in which this gradual weakening created a major problem and chaos. We don't know if that Iran might follow the Venezuelan path or not, but it's the least costly path to countries that are concerned about Iran but do not want in a hard military war to be fought with Iran, right? Internally, Iran has is losing the grips. It is using leverage, but we don't know when when the expiration date for all that leverage may arrive. It certainly won't within the region, but even within the region, there are shifts occurring. Okay. So I want to go back to our first, my first story about 1925, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and how they tried to talk about, well, it's really complex. This is, they were approaching World War II, the British, the Americans were there, and as two countries, they were like, well, what do we do here? I mean, we're here to stay. They come in, they go, you know, they're far away. We're the ones who have to pay the cost. What do we do? So what I discovered is, again, in my research was that there were times when they were able to do some things, but that was when they were at their strongest points in their history, politically, economically, when they were confident states, they built a confident region. But when there was an imbalance of power, which has often occurred in the Gulf region, they have not been able to build and reestablish strong connections. So this reaching out now, fast forward now, 2019, again, by countries like the UAE or Saudi Arabia to Iran, to try to figure out something, is not likely to yield much of any result if Iran becomes much weaker, right? If anything, if Iran becomes weaker, it's ideologically driven policies in the region will become more pronounced, right? Because that's how, that's how it works. Um, so it won't get, get very far, and um, there might come a point of total breakdown. If that breakdown is not to happen, the Trump administration has to pursue negotiations with Iran, has to give in, because issues are complex, and if you want to depoliticize the Gulf region, you have to figure out what the level of give and take is going to be in Syria, in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Iran itself, with the United States with the, and with other world powers. Short of that, and we know this is a very complicated and complex task to achieve. It requires policymakers thinking about what to do next round the clock. And frankly, Washington policymakers are busy with other things. So I'll leave it here, and I look forward to getting your questions. And I hope that at least I was able to shed a bit of light on, on some of the issues that uh, are going on at the moment. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dr. Fanishev Kinosh for her presentation. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. I 
Chef Kenosh for her presentation. And now it's time for um, our question and answer period. And we have a large number of questions. So let us begin. Um, Let's go back to that first question or the last topic you touched upon, war. Um, Do you think there'll be a war in the region that's military? I know you touched upon uh, what's already happening in uh, economic terms. And if so, who will begin it? Um, Good question. Um, Why do you need a military war when there is a war already going on anyways? Right? And it seems less costly than an all-out all military war. And why do you need a military war when you know that the battle to be fought with Iran is not actually a hard military battle, but an ideological battle? So inside Iran, they're very cautious not to trigger a war. Unlike the coverage that we read here, they are extremely cautious. And quite surprisingly, it's the armed forces that have become a little nicer uh, these days, because they usually say people who actually have fought a battle know that they don't want a war, right? It's the clerics, the, the ideological leaders of Iran who've, who've become very passionately hot, uh, you know, with, with ideas about how to contain the U.S. right now. But the military commanders are, and I think Iran's play in the Gulf with the tankers is aimed at deterrence rather than offensive capability. I don't believe the Trump administration right now might trigger an immediate war. If there is going to be a war, it has to be a combination of things going hand in hand, an internal collapse of inside, inside Iran, a substitution of, of leadership in Iran that will have to come from God knows where, um, who's being trained, um, you know, by who, where. There are opposition groups, but, you know, they all have foreign backing, more or less. And frankly, if you go to Iran, people in Iran are the ones who've paid the price of difficulties, and I would assume that they want, a role, they want the main role in the leadership of the country, because they're the ones who've burdened the hardships. So we, there are too many ifs, and if there are too many ifs for a hard military war, then the danger is things will just drift along the path that they are now, which is more or less a kind of a war, too. And let's dive in a little deeper on the economic pressures that are happening internally in Iran with sanctions. But also, you know, this is happening within the context of an overall global economic slowdown and softening. And you touched upon uh, the fact that with the remaining partners in the nuclear deal, the UK, Germany... Um, China, uh, whose economies are softening. And if Brexit is a hard Brexit, um, can you speak to, you know, sort of the, the pull, the give and take that here you have Iran internally with economic pressures, but also all of these external actors, um, as I said, again, China, and other European actors um, dealing with their own stiff economic headwinds. What's that? How's that going to look? And all of them, interestingly, are looking at the next recession in the United States, predicting that it might happen in six months. And then, you know, they'll, 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 they'll redesign policies then, but it's a very good and valid question. 
The fact is that all these countries that are part of the nuclear deal with Iran have interest in the nuclear deal staying in place because Iran offers an economic opportunity to all of them. And if things brighten up between Washington and Tehran, Iran will have that to offer to Washington as well. Uh, it's a country with a great deal of potential. But having said that, Iran's markets have never been large enough for any of those countries. We can't fool ourselves. I mean, I'm, when I say us... I'm talking from a per Persian-centric point of view, not about that. The Persian-centric point of view is Iran is the center of the world, and the whole world needs Iran, and we're so glorious, and we're so great, and we have so much oil. But when you look at the and we, we may well be, but when you look at the figures, Iran is actually a very minor oil exporter to Asia compared to the United Arab Emirates or, or Saudi Arabia, for example, who are rapidly moving in and replacing Iran's capacities for China, for elsewhere. Even Iraq, which is an ally in many levels with Iran, is competing with Iran in the oil sector. The UAE is trying to compete more. Um, so Iran's share of the markets it's, is still not strong enough for those countries to be able to bring about a course of policy change between the United States, influence a policy change between the United States and Iran. But that's something to look for mm. and see if that might happen later on, assuming a recession in the United States, assuming a recession elsewhere in the world. It's a very broad topic to, to navigate. But one thing I will say is that in this midst, Iran's economy as dismal as it is, is probably one of the most resilient of the economies to cope with that because it's been a dismal economy for very long and people <laughs> already know how to cope, right? Got it. And so uh, the question that came from the audience, do you foresee a scenario where uh, Russia or China will provide financial aid to prop up uh, Iran's economy if it has a collapse? Yeah. Well, if the tariff concerns between the United States and China continue, China has already said that it will not follow the sanctions when it comes to meeting its immediate oil needs. It's, it's, it hasn't really, it's bought a lot of Iranian oil before the exemptions ended, but reports indicate that Iranian ships are still in Chinese ports waiting to unload. So some, some selling might go on there. You know, there's an understanding that though Iran might not be able to return the money to the country because of the sanctions that maybe it can get goods in turn. Russia has offered to help Iran export some of its oil and in return offer goods and services. Um, but none of these ideas are new. They happened when Iran was under sanctions in 2010 as well. They were, you know, floated around. It wasn't enough to, to change the political calculations back from that experience. So we kind of have to wait and see, I would say. They're trying to be gentlemanly as neighbors or gentlewomanly as neighbors with <laughs> Iran. But there's only up to a point. They all have their own interests with the United States as well. We'd like to remind our listening audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program called the Iran Crisis and that our speaker is Dr. Banashef Kanush and I'm Linda Calhoun, today's moderator. Um, can you talk to us about uh, to what degree U.S. policy towards Iran is driven by Israel? And is this in the U.S. interest? 
In all the countries in the region that I've mentioned today, Israel happens to be one of my favorite. And I'll tell you why. Because Israel happens lives in the region. Israel is part of the region, and it has a very firm grasp of the reality on the ground. In my humble opinion, Israel actually, when everybody else was talking about how bad Iran is and how, let's go, Israel was like, hang on. If it's already complex enough around my borders with Syria, with Lebanon, and if I can manage this as is and keep Iran the permanent foe, so as to get what I need from the in terms of my interests with the United States, well, then why shake the waters? So Israel is actually a realist and pragmatist, in my humble view, even under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, everything is relevant uh, to a degree to what the United States decides to do. I don't think the United States would ultimately place its own in, uh, Israel's interests over and above the interests of the United States. Um, but Israel has already navigated a very difficult political situation and security situation in the Middle East for a long time, and there's no reason why it can't navigate more complex ones down the road, however direction. So Israel is, is actually one of the least of my headaches when I look at the map of the Middle East and the Iran <laughs> crisis at the moment. And then when you talked about 1925 and the outreach between the House of Saud and the House of Shaw, um, can you give an overview to how much of this is Sunni-Shia rivalry? And do you see a a conciliation at some point between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Um, Or... Is that highly unlikely? Um, Frankly, in my research, very little of it had to do with the Sunni-Shia rivalry. Um, It had to do with the imbalance of power between them. So whenever they felt politically and security-wise insecure, obviously ideology becomes a foreign policy tool. So you compete, especially for countries that know, you know, they they grow up with religion. They get religion faster than they, in many cases, at least in Iran, get politics, as far as I can tell. So they fall back on ideology as a tool to advance foreign policy, but it's not the main driver of their foreign policy. And as I said in my story, Ibn Saud, Abdulaziz al-Saud actually wanted Persia and Egypt's recognition, Egypt being Sunni predominantly and Persia um, being predominantly Shia. Uh, those were one of the two first countries that he reached out to for the recognition. So that tells us a lot about the the fact that we can manage religious differences very easily if we get the politics right. But obviously, nobody's getting the politics right. (laughs) And then getting back to your statement that um, the UK is going to be a, a, a key actor to watch in what unfolds. Um, the questions that have come in, um, you know, can you speak a little bit more about what the UK will do if they crash out um, in their Brexit um, debacle, <laughs> for lack of a better term? And... Um, do you see, this This other question from the audience is, do you see any link between the tension in the Gulf and the recent tension about oil search attempts in Eastern uh, Mediterranean? Uh, and the UK is, is heavily involved in both. So how do you see those two aspects influencing their behavior? I love that this whole Brexit thing is going to come to a major, major, uh, you know, 
I guess, headline point uh, just on Halloween. So I'm trying to figure out what to wear <laughs> as a costume on Halloween. <laughs> it would sort of have maybe a Brexit sign on my head or something. So. But, no. Um, as far as, and I'm not an expert on Brexit, but I do understand that Europe will depend on the British economy a great deal, Brexit hard or not. And there is a level of interaction and reality as named just like Saudi Arabia and Iran have a reality check going on. So does Europe, the rest of Europe with Britain. And I think when everybody gets real, takes their heels off and gets grounded, something has to work out for both sides. Um, there's too much codependency over there to let go with political. That's just my basic understanding. But... Um, the real concern that I that exists regarding the UK is to what extent it will follow the United States in its the conduct of its foreign policy towards Iran, and that's that's the real issue that led to the tanker dispute, both in the Mediterranean when uh, on Fourth of July, just on Fourth of July, the British uh, took a tanker that was carrying Iranian oil. Right. Uh, and Iran, what Iran has been doing, including with taking a British tanker in exchange in the Gulf, is signaling to the UK that we want you back on board with the rest of the party to the nuclear deal, including especially the European parties, Germany and France. That will give Iran leverage to negotiate with the Europeans separately from the Trump administration. But if the UK takes a U-turn and goes around to the Trump administration with regard to Iran, not only does Iran lose that European leverage, and Germany is watching very cautiously. Germany is telling the UK, everybody to be cautious here. And so is France. France has a delegation trying to work this out with Iran uh, right now. But then not only does that disrupt the leverage with Iran, but then it brings a whole new dimension in U.S.-U.K. relations, and that will in turn impact the U.K. negotiations over Brexit. So we have to see how um, Boris Johnson will play this with the Europeans more, and that will determine how he'll choose, I believe, his Iran policy, if, if it makes sense. It's like a three-dimensional <laughs> movie. <laughs> just becomes more and more complex, but I'm, I'm glad Sorry. we're here to have you help us navigate uh, that complexity. Thank you. And so um, let's talk about in this question, how does U.S. pressure on Iran affect Iran's ability to influence conflicts in Syria and Lebanon? Directly, uh, direct relationship. The more pressure, the more Iran will create discomfort in the region. That's always been the case because that's one of the tools that Iran, Tehran knows how to, how to navigate. And it has considerable influence in, across the region. But back to my balance of power theory, that doesn't mean that the U.S. doesn't have leverage over that. In Syria, after many years of civil war, we have discovered that some give and take is necessary, Right. Um, America has no desire of stationing troops long-term anywhere anymore, including in Syria. And Iran is already involved. And all those Arab countries that once turned their back on Syria because it was too close to Iran have now started reopening their embassies in Syria, right? 
And Qatar, which is itself an Arab country and got into a fight with the rest of the Arab world over its closeness with Iran. You know, Qatar's emir was just in Washington. So there's a we, there's a recognition that you have not everybody has to agree with what we want, right? In Lebanon, it's already a communal political system, uh, and so on. So in Iraq, you know, the Iranians have considerable influence, but you know, the Gulf countries are trying to regain some influence. The U.S. is still a major actor. So, if the U.S. can work out a, a give and take with Iran in those countries, things will reverse, and Iran will be less disruptive in the region. But then if not, Iran will certainly become more, uh, if not disruptive, it will play its cards harder. Mm. And speaking of those cards, one question that I have here, uh, would Iran consider giving up support for Hezbollah and Hamas in order to improve relations with the U.S.? Do you see that as a bargaining It's not conceivable because... um, and it's probably Iran would say it's not even necessary because, I mean, Iran and Hezbollah have a sort of a military, you know, give and take between them. But Hezbollah over the years has become part of the political mainstream in, in Lebanon, whether we like it or not. It, in Lebanon's elections last year, Hezbollah allies came out pretty well. So we can't ignore that. And Iran doesn't need to do much by way of breaking it or keeping its relations with Hezbollah for us as the West to figure out that Hezbollah is there to kind of stay. And it's for us to figure out what we want to do with it. The same with Hamas. I mean, it's Hamas is an actor. And in all these years, actually, Iran, I, I said in one of my first talks at the Commonwealth, they've had an office of Hamas in Tehran. They've had an office of Fatah in Hamas. You know, if need be, Tel Aviv will open an embassy over there. I mean, that's politics. But those are the tools that will shape if we get the underlying tre- um, trends right. And, uh, you know, prior to uh, us launching the program, I shared an experience of uh, having been an elections observer in South Africa and the parallel that um, here was a conflict with apartheid uh, and anti-apartheid forces, where prior to the all-race elections that happened there, I don't think much of the world thought there could be this peaceful transition, um, to your mind, do you see, can you leave us with some hope about um, sanctions, whether they're internal to Iran, gl- softening of the global economy, uh, people understanding that a military conflict is not in anyone's best interest? Do you see a peaceful transition to solving so many of these conflicts in, that we discussed in this past hour. I certainly do if we get the trends right and if our politicians become better at their jobs. Um, uh, I'm all over the world. I don't mean any place. I I, I have the right to say that. Um, uh, It's just an opinion. Um, But in terms of hope, knowing the people of Iran, they are my greatest hope. They are very interesting people. In Iran, you know, there's a saying, like there's kind of a proverb, would say everything in between a chicken's milk to human life, and then I add, is negotiable. You know, because human life is sacred, you can't take it in. There's no such thing as chicken milk, right? So in Iran, the culture is all about negotiating. 
and doing it gently and doing it softly. And no matter what happens to Iran, those people will carry on and they will negotiate whatever occurs. So we might as well just stay on the right side of those people. They're great people. (laughs) Great. Thank you. You know, um, we're at a point where we have time for just one last question. And this comes from the audience. And that is, when will your new book be available? (laughs) And please describe its contents for us. What's your Oh, I wish you hadn't asked. Because I am like beating myself up trying to answer the question in this book while I'm editing it off. Whether or not the negotiating space with Iran is shrinking or expanding. I wish you would help me out because I'm looking at Iran's relations with Turkey, with Kuwait, with Saudi Arabia, with the United Arab Emirates, with Qatar, with all the Arab countries and with Israel to an extent and and how it plays. So having said that, I only have one more month in August to edit the book and figure that answer out. (laughs) Uh, Luckily, I have contributors from the region who are also writing with me and contributing to chapters. And if all goes well, Um, all goes well, that ends well. Um, If I can find an answer to this big question, the book should be out in January. Well, thank you so much. Um, Let's offer our thanks to our distinguished speaker, Dr. Banashev Kinoush, for her comments. And we also thank our audiences here and those listening to the recording and on the internet. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California celebrating over 116 years of enlightened discussion is adjourned. And again, thank you very much, Dr. Kamish. Thank you. Thank you.